Today we are going to be concluding our study in the book of Mark um, as we study verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 42 to chapter 16, verse 8. But as you can see here, we're going to be studying verses 9 to 20 also, sort of, kind of. Um, at the beginning of this study, uh, one of the things I told you is that there is almost an entire chapter that, uh, that doesn't belong in the book. And that's what we are coming to, and we're going to talk about that very quickly before we get uh, to, our, uh, to the main portion of our study. But um, as I was sitting here listening to, uh, to Charlotte playing uh, Joy to the World, and we're all singing, uh, there was a, a verse that, that caught me. Um, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And man, on Friday, we saw the curse. We saw what the curse looks like in what is probably the most horrific act. It didn't cause the most deaths since 9-11, but I would argue that it is the most horrific act that we've seen on American soil since 9-11. How anybody could go into a, a kindergarten room and, and open fire on a, a bunch of six-year-olds is, is beyond me, but it reminds us that we live in a, a broken world. It reminds us that the curse is all around us. It reminds us of the fact that there is a moral standard outside of ourselves. There is a real evil that's out there. Evil does exist. You know, they would tell you these days in public schools that there's no such thing as good or evil. But you look at this and you say, you can't, you can't say, when you see this, you can't say there's no such thing as evil. Because if there's no such thing as evil, if the curse is something that we've just made up, then what we saw on Friday, what happened on Friday, is at best morally neutral. And there's not one of us in here that would agree with that statement. There's not one person that we would talk to that would agree that that is the moral equivalent of feeding a hungry child. There really is a good and evil there really is a curse. And we're reminded when we see something like that that the curse is real. But we're also reminded of the fact that Jesus knows what suffering is. He's not a God who just turned a blind eye to it and said, I, I don't need to do that. He said, I will suffer with you. And in a situation like this, we're reminded that he will punish evil and that there's a day that's coming when he's going to restore everything and make everything good again. And it's days like Friday where, I don't know about you guys, but I am really looking forward to the day that he returns and restores the earth to the original goodness that he created it in. And we've just studied um, the curse. We've just studied last week uh, the crucifixion, where Jesus became our curse. And so today we're going to be uh, in our last lesson. We've been studying the book of Mark. If you can believe this, we've been studying it for a year and three months. Uh, which to me, I, I look back and I'm like, wow, this just flew by. But uh, this has been a study that I have personally really enjoyed. And of course, we've had a couple mini-series in there. But uh, we're going to be coming to a conclusion today as we look at the resurrection. But first I want to address these verses that, uh, that don't belong in our text. Uh, it's important that we realize that when we're talking about the doctrine of inerrancy, 
and, and for anybody who doesn't know what the doctrine of inerrancy is, it's the, the belief that the Bible is free of any form of error. Uh, when we're talking about this belief, we're talking about the original manuscripts, the, the, the documents that, were, that came right off of the pen of the authors of the Bible. There are very, very, very few scholars or theologians that I'm aware of who deny that there are some very questionable passages that have made uh, their way into our Bibles today. And some of the exceptions there would be uh, people who uh, are KJV onlyists, who believe that the KJV is the only inspired uh, version or translation of the Bible that you can find. It, it's it's in, actually an improvement over the original manuscripts, according to a KJV onlyist. And I, I'm not going to go into that. I think it's silly, but I'm not going to go into that today. But uh, most scholars agree that there are passages in our Bibles that don't belong there. And every now and then I'll point that out to you guys. Oh, this wasn't in the early manuscripts. Um, th- instead, what we find is that uh, these passages will be in either italics or they'll be in brackets in your Bible. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you will find verses uh, 9 to 20 in brackets or italics. Um, how they got there is usually kind of a matter of speculation, but it's actually usually pretty easy to tell. Uh, when something that wasn't originally written with the rest of the book uh, has found its way into our Bible. And that is, we compare the earliest manuscripts, the ones that are closest uh, to the first century, or that were written in the first century, or early second century, and we compare them with manuscripts that came later. And if later manuscripts contain a word or words that the, uh, that the early manuscripts don't contain, it's obvious that the later manuscripts have somehow been corrupted. And a lot of times what happened is the ancient monks who used to sit there and just you know, write out scripture, sometimes what they would do is they'd put a little note over in the margin next to a verse. And then when somebody came along after them and was copying everything that they had written down, they included the notes that were in the margin, and so it, it got into our Bibles today, and so, but it's, it's easy to tell by looking at the early manuscripts what should be there and what shouldn't be there. Another way to confirm that the later copy contained words which weren't originally included is to compare the style of the author with the passage in question, and that's actually uh, what we're going to see a quick example of before we begin our, uh, our final lesson in the book of Mark, because most of this final chapter should not be in our Bibles today. Starting in verse 9, we see this drastic change in language. Uh, it, becomes, it becomes very mystical, very mysterious. Uh, and, and we don't have it up here, but if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can follow along and see what I'm going through here. Uh, verses 9 to 11 say, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he, appeared, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her. They refused to believe it. Now, verse 9 here contains what can very easily be uh, recognized as Gnostic language. This is Gnostic language. That was a, a very big threat to the early church, Gnosticism. This belief that uh, you know, there, there was another element, a deeper element, a more mystical, spiritual element that you didn't see. Uh, and so there is an element of truth here. Uh, Jesus did indeed appear first to Mary Magdalene, uh, and she did go out and tell John and Peter, according to John's testimony. But to bring up the fact that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, um, 
you know, that's, uh, that, first of all, that's something that we don't find in any of the other Gospels. Uh, but it's also something that's not typical for the language or the style that Mark has used for, uh, for 15 chapters. Uh, but this is only the beginning of this sudden drastic change. Verses 12 and 13 say, After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Now, this is very clearly Gnostic language as well. Uh, Jesus did not appear to them in a different form. Jesus is not a shapeshifter. He didn't change forms. Rather, Luke tells us that the eyes of these two disciples were prevented from recognizing him. And there's a huge difference. One is a difference in Jesus' form, and one is God preventing these two disciples somehow from recognizing him. There's a huge difference. No, Jesus did not appear in a different form. And if we kept this in our Bibles, we'd have a contradiction with what Luke tells us. So, this, yeah, this is Gnostic language. Uh, it, it doesn't appear in the early text. Let's continue. Verses 14 to 18. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now again, this is not only, this is not only unparalleled in any of the other gospel narratives, but it's also the source of some very dangerous theology, both, both um, uh, physically dangerous and spiritually dangerous. Uh, in 2010, or 2010, in 1910, 112 years, or 102 years ago, my math isn't quite with me this morning, a man named George Went Hensley uh, read Mark chapter 16, verse 18, and he was convinced that true believers should not only be speaking in tongues, but they should also be handling snakes as well. And for 2,000 years almost, you know, 1,900 years, nobody had taught this. But all of a sudden, this guy read it, and he interpreted it very, very literally. And so what he did with, with that thought in mind is he went through the Appalachian region of the United States, persuading churches to start practicing snake handling as a demonstration of true faith. And if they were bit by the snake and they lived, well, they had true faith. And if they were bit by the snake and they died, too bad for them. They didn't have real faith. They shouldn't have been, uh, you know, uh, faking it to begin with. Now, aside from, from Paul, the Apostle Paul being bitten by a snake in the book of Acts, that is something that we read about. We actually never read about the early church doing anything uh, with snakes. Uh, we don't read anything about Everyone speaking in these uh, in these tongues, um, you know, th- this is stuff that that we just don't see in the early church. And again, there's a slight element of truth here in a very quick summarization of the Great Commission. But the Great Commission was not to preach the gospel to all of creation. The gospel was to go to the nation and make disciples, go to, the, go to the nations and make disciples. And again, there's this element of mysticism because there's an implication that if you can't find a person uh, to listen to you preaching the gospel, go ahead and find a tree or a rock or, or a cloud and preach the gospel to those things because that's part of creation. So again, that's, it's mystical. It's Gnostic. 
uh, the final two verses, 19 and 20. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that... Excuse me, by the signs that followed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. None of this should be in the Bible. The, the most significant evidence that none of this, verses, uh, verses 9 to 20, none of this belongs in our Bibles, is found in the fact that the writings of the church fathers, the, the, the disciples of the disciples of Jesus, the earliest church fathers, none of these uh, writings by these guys um, contain these verses. They, they, they do quote almost the entire New Testament except for 11 verses, I believe it is, most of which are found in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. But none of the early church fathers quote a single thing out of verses 9 to 20. Not even one reference uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen were two guys who quoted the New Testament extensively. I mean, like all over the place, pieces here and there, all over the place. And neither one of them mentioned these verses. Um, Eusebius and Jerome, who came a little bit later, uh, were another pair of early church fathers who affirmed that their manuscripts of the book of, Mar- of Mark ended at verse 8. So, in other words, verses uh, 9 to 20 didn't actually show up until about two or 300 years after the book of Mark was written. Where did they come from? We don't know. All we know is that the early manuscripts, two to 300 years worth of manuscripts, don't contain these verses. Uh, and that's why in your Bibles you'll find it in italics or in, in brackets. And sometimes there's even a note at the bottom that says the earliest manuscripts don't contain this section. And we, we can see why. Uh, it, it's not Mark's style. There's some very questionable material at best, and we know that Gnosticism had infiltrated the church before the end of the first century and was a major, major issue uh, for the next couple hundred years. So it's easy to see why these verses don't belong. So our story today will conclude and continues with Jesus having uh, just surrendered his spirit on the cross And Mark told us that one of the Roman guards at the foot of the cross proclaimed that Jesus truly was the Son of God and that the women who had seen, uh, who had had been there, seen all the things that Jesus had done, they'd been there from the beginning, uh, were were the last ones to leave the scene of the crucifixion. Now we need to understand that these women that Mark is referring to, they weren't sticking around because they had an expectation that something was going to happen. They instead are in mourning. They're, they're broken. They're feeling hopeless because at this point, the death of Jesus represents the end of their hopes and their dreams. It, was, it represented despair and, and utter hopelessness. Their love and commitment to Jesus remain firm, but their faith, their faith has been crushed at this point. So Mark now moves on to tell us about the events that follow the crucifixion, starting with a man who had, up until this point, basically tried to keep his faith stuffed in a closet as if it was a pile of smelly socks. We pick it up in verses 42 to 47 of the 15th chapter of Mark. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he granted Sorry, and, and, uh, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So the next person that Mark moves on to here is Joseph of Arimathea, who was what I would refer to as a closet Christian. A closet Christian. That is, he wanted to keep his faith to himself, and he feared what people would think of him if they knew that he was a follower of Jesus. John tells us that Joseph was indeed a disciple of Jesus, but that he had been A secret one. That's from John chapter 19, verse 38. So not only was Joseph uh, this follower of Jesus, but he was also a member of the same council which had just convicted Jesus of blasphemy. And Mark's careful to tell us that he was not only a member of the council, he's a prominent member. He's important. He's got respect. He's got pull. He's got influence. He's got esteem among the people. And Joseph is a person that all four of the gospel authors mention. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about him, but there's not even a single reference to him before the cross. Before this point. Because his faith had been stuffed into a closet. And it wasn't until he saw Jesus hanging dead on the cross that he finally had that moment of crisis where he was forced to open the closet door and just let the chips fall where they may. And up until this point in his life, Joseph was a lot like the majority of Christians. Let's be honest. He was a lot like the majority of Christians. He's happy in his comfort zone. He's afraid to be too open or too blatant about his love for Jesus. And it usually looks something like this. When a new believer is saved. When somebody is saved and they're a new believer, they're usually really, really excited about Jesus and they want to share the good news with everyone they know, but then it costs them a friendship. Or then it strains, really strains, a relationship with a family member. And suddenly, the young believer realizes that they hadn't counted the cost of following Jesus. They hadn't counted the cost of spreading the good news. And so from that point onward, the young believer becomes stingy. Stingy with their faith. They become stingy. You know what I mean by stingy? I mean, they, they keep it to themselves. They, they, they keep it all to themselves. They don't want to give it away. They don't want to share it. You, you might call them a faith hoarder. Because they, they, they've just got all the blessings piled up and they don't want to share it. It's mine, and, uh, you know, if if I were to give it away to somebody, you know, they might get mad. So I'm going to keep it all to myself. Last year, a professor at Stanford University, obviously one of the most prestigious universities 
in the world, uh, but definitely one of the most prestigious in, in America, uh, this professor by the name of Dr. Frank Lynn reviewed a number of studies that examined the connections between wealth, generosity, and compassion. And lo and behold, he found that wealthy people are far less compassionate and way more stingy than the average person. And here we are. We are rich with God's blessings. We're we're rich with them. We're rich with His grace. And we hoard it. There's this tendency to just keep it to ourselves. Even though the gospel has the power to transform a person's life. Remove them from the curse. Man, that is some serious transformation. That's serious. That's huge. It changes everything for a person. You remember the, the, the illustration with the tape measure? You know, where you know, we focus on this little part and then there's this huge part behind it. We change where they're going to be for that huge part when we share the gospel with them and the Holy Spirit convicts them. So we, we, we hoard it. We hoard God's blessings. We hoard grace and faith just like Joseph. But Joseph reaches a point where he had to risk it all in order to do the right thing. Either he's going to be in sin by personal conviction, because he's got this conviction, I've got to do something here. So either he's, got to, he's going to go against his conscience, or he's going to follow it. His prominence, his influence, his power, he was forced to put it all on the line. All the chips are on the table for this one. Are we really willing to risk those things if that's what the cost is of following Jesus faithfully? Influence, maybe friendships, power, position. I'll just be honest. I don't want to be a faith hoarder. I don't want that to be said of me. I want to be generous with my faith. I want to be able to give it away selflessly. I want to give it away boldly because God was so generous in how he's blessed me. So I can't hoard it. I can't keep it to myself. I want to be generous with it. He's given us more grace than we can possibly use in an entire lifetime. It's like being given $50 million and saying, you know, here you go. You're you're set for life. You're set for life. And so what do you do? Do you keep it to yourself? That's what the world does. There's that value system again. Me, me, me. And studies prove it. Or do you want to be like Jesus and give it away? You want, to, you want to give it away. Live out faith, live out our faith with reckless abandon. That's what we're called to do. And so Joseph buys a linen. He takes Jesus down from the cross. He wraps him in the linens and he gives Jesus a, a, a proper Jewish burial. Making sure, by the way, to seal the tomb. But look who's following from a distance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. They wanted to anoint Jesus' body with spices, and maybe they were unaware of the fact that Jesus was already wrapped with about 100 pounds of spices by another man who was also a prominent member of the council and who also was something of a closet Christian, a man by the name of Nicodemus. 
He wrapped Jesus with about 100 pounds of spices. So the disciples had left feeling hopeless. Those left at the cross, the women and Joseph of Arimathea, they were feeling equally hopeless. See, to them, death represented the same thing that it had meant earlier in the week to Martha. When her brother Lazarus had been sick earlier in the week, she and her sister Mary had sent for Jesus to come and visit Lazarus. Now, now why would they do that? It's because they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed that he had the power to heal. They believed that he wanted to heal. But Jesus intentionally delays getting there. And he arrived four days after Lazarus had died. And John tells us that Martha says to Jesus in John chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But to her, this word whatever obviously didn't include the possibility of a resurrection. You see, for Martha, from from her perspective, as strong as her faith was, Jesus had limited power. So she's thinking, it's too bad that you didn't get here before he died because now it's too late. So in her mind, Jesus' power is limited. Whatever she meant by whatever, she didn't see any hope in the death of her brother. She didn't see any hope in the death of Lazarus. And so Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. That's verse 23. The fact that Martha had a very limited view of Jesus' power is revealed in the fact that she responds to Jesus saying, your brother will rise again by saying this. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's verse 24. You see, the Jews did expect this resurrection in the future. In fact, the earliest book written in the entire Bible, Job, has a reference to the future resurrection. Job says, even if I die with my eyes, I'm going to see my Savior. But they have this expectation only at the end, only at the end of the age on the day of judgment. And so Jesus responds by saying in verses 25 and 26 of John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, death is the greatest enemy. Death is our greatest enemy. And yet, I kind of doubt that, uh, that he had numbered death among his enemies or his adversaries when David wrote, My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. And from those who persecute me, I I, kind of think that David probably wasn't thinking about death as an enemy. And yet, Paul makes it clear in his first letter to the Corinthian church that death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And here's Jesus telling Martha that he has power over death right now. Right now. That he has power over death. Power that she didn't realize that he had. Power that Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseph didn't realize that Jesus had. See, up until this point, death seemed like it should represent hopelessness. And it absolutely does for the person who stubbornly refuses 
to trust in Jesus. For the person who refuses to put their faith in Jesus and follow him, yes, death is hopeless because it's at that point that the door of salvation, the opportunity for salvation, is slammed shut and welded closed forever. May we never fall into this trap where we think of the power of Jesus as being limited. When it comes to issues in life, I'm talking about difficult, painful issues, whether that be temptation or habitual sin or somebody going into an elementary school and opening fire on innocent children or deep grief, loneliness, sickness, persecution, impending death, all of these things. If Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, which he did, by the way, he has the power to deal with any issue that we face in life. Any issue. And Job learned, by the way, that God doesn't always fix our problems the way that we would expect. He doesn't always remedy our situations as we would hope. But the problems and issues that we have in life are never, ever big enough or significant enough or strong enough to outmuscle our God. Never. And that's the lesson that Joseph, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, and some of their friends are about to learn. Let's continue. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So these three women, they they set out while it was still dark. And all they're doing, all they've got in mind is honoring Jesus. They had to wait until after the Sabbath because that would have been work, and they don't want to sin in the way that they honor Jesus, so they wait faithfully. They wait until after the Sabbath to try and come and honor Jesus. And they've brought spices. They're coming to try and anoint his body. Maybe they didn't realize that Jesus had been anointed for burial just a few days earlier while he ate at the home of Simon the leper. Remember the expensive vial of perfume? And Jesus said, she has anointed me for what's to come. But it's pretty obvious that the women haven't thought this whole thing through. Not only did they fail to realize that Jesus had already been anointed, but that tomb was going to stink to high heaven. I mean, that tomb was really going to stink. It it doesn't take long for a dead body to start smelling really, really bad. Not that I'd know because I don't have a sense of smell, but what I did is I went on to a coroner's website to find out how long it takes for a body to start smelling. And by the way, if there's a murder that happens around here, man, I am toast. Because they'll look at my computer and say, oh, he's trying to figure out how, how long it takes for a body to stink. No, I, I wanted to find out how long it was for this, for this study. Let the record uh, you know, reflect the fact that I'm, I'm looking for this study to find out how long it uh, takes a body to stink. And what I found is that it takes um, about an hour, maybe two, before, it, it depends on the conditions, you know, if it's like in a swampy area, obviously. Watch out. Uh, But it takes about an hour or two hours for the body to start smelling pretty bad. After five hours, it smells wretched. It smells horrible. And after 24 hours, it's bad enough to make the average person lose their breakfast and their lunch. Uh, If you've ever seen like a coroner's show, you you see that they put this this menthol-y stuff right under their nose 
uh, if the body has you know, been dead for a significant amount of time. Yeah, 24 hours. 24 hours before it starts smelling really bad. So I don't think uh, that they had exactly planned out this whole thing. I don't think they had thought about how they were going to get close enough to the body of Jesus to anoint it. I also don't think that they had thought about how they would get past the guard at the tomb. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees had feared that the disciples would take the body of Jesus as a means of making it look like the fulfillment of prophecy, of you know, raising from the grave. And so they asked Pilate, Pilate, can you, can you put a guard there just for three days just to make sure that this doesn't happen? And Pilate grants their request. So there's this guard there. So that represents a second obstacle that they hadn't come up with a plan for. And third, Mark tells us that they have no plan for moving the stone. You know, they're on the way and somebody says, oh, by the way, there's a stone over the tomb. How are we going to handle that? Uh, this would have been a, a very big rock, obviously. Um, a few months ago, uh, we poured gravel out here in the driveway here at the church. And the way we did that is we, we got like a, a section of, of fence and on top of that fence, we put a large rock, and Craig dragged that behind his car as he drove around, uh, drove around the parking lot. That rock is on the other side of the parking lot. If you want to go out and uh, find out how heavy that rock is, the three of us could barely move it. And the rock that we're talking about is at least five times bigger than the rock out there. So there is no way that three people, whether they're men or women, there is no way that they're going to be able to do anything about that stone. And yet, here are these three women, hoping against hope itself that they'd be able to do something, anything. What amazing devotion. What amazing devotion. You know, every one of us faces obstacles. And I would propose that facing them with this type of devotion to Jesus is the best way to approach those obstacles. Now, I'm not saying that we should you know, oh, forget about planning stuff out. Let's just go and, and trust God. No, there, there's wisdom in planning things out. All I'm saying is that with God, all things are possible. All things can happen. What I've learned is that God will often allow us to be faced with insurpassable Obstacles. Obstacles that there's no way we can, we can deal with on our own. And he'll allow us to be faced with them just so he can demonstrate his own power. Just so he can demonstrate what he can do. Not what we can do, but what he and he alone can do. We're talking about a God who not only knows and sees our weaknesses, but that he uses those weaknesses to make his glory and his power known. When Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that he had, right? We all know about that. And God said, no. Even though you've got this thorn in the flesh, I'm going to work through your weakness for your ministry. So it kept Paul humble because it kept Paul relying on God because of whatever this weakness might have been, whatever this thorn in the flesh might have been. Peter wrote this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Let me read that again. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You know what that means? It means there's no such thing as an impossible situation for you and me. Because by his power, he's able to meet 
every single need we have. And I think he loves to do that through our our brokenness and through our, our weaknesses because that leaves no doubt about the fact that he did it, that we had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was done not because, you know, we're so smart or we're so strong or we're so able to do something. It was done because God stepped in and did what only he can do. So bring on the obstacles because with God, all things, all things are possible. And that's exactly what the women find when they arrive at the tomb. Let's continue, verses 4 to 8 in Mark chapter 16. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now remember, they knew exactly where the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had laid Jesus was where it was located because they had followed from a distance. But as they get there, they're in utter astonishment because the stone is already rolled away. The stone that had sealed it is already moved. And Mark, by the way, he's, he's very specific here. It was an extremely large stone. It's been rolled away. And so obviously, Right away, they're realizing that there's something really, really unusual going on here. And so uh, I, I would guess one of them gets the wise idea, hey, we'd better go into this tomb and find out what's going on for ourselves. And Matthew tells us that an angel had rolled the stone back. Not so much so that Jesus could get out, but so that people could come in and see what had happened. See for themselves that Jesus had risen from the dead just like he had foretold. But an empty tomb can be explained in a lot of different ways. And so the women here will need to be told why the tomb is empty. So as the women enter the tomb, they're confronted by an angel who tells them that he has risen. Just like he had said. Just like he had promised. And I can't imagine what had to have been going through their minds as the angel is telling them that, hey, this is, this is exactly what he had said. I imagine, you know, it would be, it's, it's an understatement to say that they were in complete shock. You ever have one of those experiences where you're in such shock, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, like you're watching a movie or something? Like, wow, is, is this real? I mean, that's the kind of shock that I imagine they are in. Maybe they started remembering what Jesus had been telling his disciples for probably three years, that he would would die and that he would rise again. So see, this, this empty tomb, this empty tomb is the answer to every argument against Christianity that's been set forth by skeptical minds for the past 2,000 years. This is the answer. Paul told us that the whole truth of Christianity, all of the truth of Christianity, hinges on the truth of what this angel has proclaimed, that Jesus has been resurrected, that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
Paul says, if this isn't true, man, none of this is true. That's how serious the resurrection is. It is the hinge that the truth of Christianity rests on. The chips are all on the table for this one. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 and 17. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then death really is the unbeatable enemy. And death is hopeless. Death is final. If Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then death really does represent a conclusion That's it. Nothingness after that. If Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then Jesus was a liar when he said that he would be raised again in three days. And he was a liar when he told Martha that he had power over death. And if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then we are still living under God's curse. Paul says, you are still in your sins if this isn't true. We are still living under the curse because we're not forgiven if there's no resurrection. Paul said this to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, talking about Jesus. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, because of all the offenses that we had toward God, and was raised because of, that's key, because of our justification. I hope you see this. I hope you see this. Paul's telling us that the purpose of the resurrection is to give evidence of our justification. It's proof. You see, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, it would have meant that his sacrifice would have meant that his sacrifice wasn't found to be acceptable to God. But his resurrection is rock solid proof that you and I have received God's grace through faith in his Son whom Paul refers to as our propitiation in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And this is a really interesting word. Helen, you're going to love this. This is a really interesting word, propitiation. It's one of those words that theologians uh, will throw around, but a lot of us don't understand because it, when was the last time you used the word propitiation in a conversation? Yeah, never. I don't think I ever have, except you know when I was talking about Jesus being our propitiation. Uh, it, it's just kind of a a dead word in the English almost. It's a word that we don't really use. And so it's very easy for us to misunderstand the meaning of propitiation just because we never use that word. We never really hear that word except in reference to Jesus. So I'm going to give you guys an easy way to remember what propitiation is. And the way that you get there is to look at the Greek word for propitiation and see how it's translated elsewhere. In the book of Hebrews, the same word is translated as mercy seat. That's what a propitiation is. The mercy seat. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, the propitiation. 
Jesus is our propitiation. He's our mercy seat. Without the mercy seat, there is only wrath and judgment. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that we have received mercy. Because we've received mercy, death has been rendered powerless in our lives. Now, it might look like an obstacle from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, it represents life. It represents something much bigger than this. Paul likens, it to, uh, Paul likens death to a seed being sown. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 and 43. He says of death, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Does the seed experience death when it's planted? No. No, it experiences life. Life like it had never known before. Life like it couldn't know if it hadn't been planted. And that's why Paul goes on to taunt death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, you've got nothing on us now, death. You've got nothing. You have no victory. You've been defeated. And its power over us is completely gone. What it represents is this abundant eternal life like, a, like a, a seed that gets planted in the ground, a much bigger life than it could have experienced without it. And of course, Mark, while he ends his narrative here, we learn from the other gospel authors and Paul that they all went on to see the risen Jesus. And, in fact, over 500 people did. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Why would he say that? And he says, some of them are among you. He, he's telling them that because it's, it's basically saying, hey, if you don't believe me that Jesus has risen from the dead, if you don't believe you know, what, what we've been saying, then talk to the people among you who saw Jesus. If the, if the resurrection isn't true, he would not be challenging his audience to investigate for themselves if they don't believe it. Instead, he would have been sweeping it under a rug because that's what liars do. Instead, he's saying, hey, chips are out on the table. The evidence is around you. Ask them if you need to. So over 500 people saw the risen Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. But he obviously wasn't talking about the work that he had to do. He was talking about the debt that needed to be paid for our sins. His work would actually continue. That's, why, that's another reason he had to raise from the dead. His work had to continue now that his disciples had begun to realize the type of power that Jesus had. That he had this power that's only limited by his desire to use it. A famous Puritan author and theologian named Stephen Sharnock wrote this. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatever he pleases. Whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. God's power, Jesus' power, is limited only by his will, only by what he desires to do. And you know what the Bible tells us God desires? The Bible tells us he desires to save us. 
He wanted to save us, and so he did. You know what else it says? He wants to save others, the lost. And finally, you know what else he wants to do? He wants to work through us to accomplish his will in reaching the lost, in ministering to the lost and ministering to each other. His work isn't done. It continues to this very day in us. It continues to this very day through us. The good news is that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and that he loves us so much that he became became the curse that you and I deserved and proved our forgiveness, proved our justification and his power over death by raising from the dead. By grace and through faith in Jesus, every sin is forgiven. And every chain that once bound us has been broken, including death. We close this study with the words of Paul, who, upon reflection on the resurrection, wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. He writes this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened by the truth of the resurrection and the power that we find there. Lord Jesus, we see here that you truly are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names, that there is no power, nothing in all the universe that can contain you. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can outmuscle you. And we're in awe of the fact that you would humble yourself to become like a man, to become a man and die so that we could be forgiven. What an incredible love. Truly, there is no greater demonstration of love in all of history. And Lord, I pray that as we see the depths of your love, that we would grow more in love with you. And as we see the heights of your power, that we would learn to trust in you more. That we would see that there's nothing too great for you to overcome. And so, Lord, we pray for you to work through our weaknesses, through our brokenness, to reveal yourself to a world that needs you so badly. A world where everywhere we look, we see signs of the curse. We look forward to your return, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would come quickly. But we pray that through your strength and through your might and through your power, you would continue to use us in accordance with your will, for your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. You are so much more.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. in the springtime open in bloom as that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass such beautiful moments they'll pass more higher greater deep more beautiful higher greater deep more beautiful higher greater deep more beautiful more beautiful Take me deeper Take me deeper Lord Take me deeper Take me deeper Lord, Lord. You are so much more Than I'll ever know Take me deeper where you want me to go You're so much greater Than I'll ever dream There's more to this life Than I see